What is a blood or conflict diamond? How did diamond engagement rings become so popular? What is the history of the diamond mining industry? Is child labor really an issue in diamond mining? We'll answer these questions and more in today's episode on the global diamond mining industry. Welcome to Wiser World, a podcast for busy people who need a refresher on all things world. Here we explore different regions of the globe, giving you the facts and context you need to think historically about current events. I truly believe that the more we learn about the world, the more we embrace our shared humanity. I'm your host, Allie Roper. Thanks for being here. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, are you ready for this? Today's episode is jam-packed. I am so excited to share with you. The global diamond mining industry has always been very complex, and so today I'm going to do my best to distill it down to the essential pieces to understand how it has worked for centuries up until today. And today's episode topic comes from Cindy, one of our listeners. On my Instagram, I asked you to share your short episode ideas, and Cindy suggested the diamond trade. So thank you, Cindy. I loved the idea, especially as Valentine's Day is coming up here in the States, and the diamond industry knows it, right? All the ads are coming out. My son is also very into gems, so I spend quite a lot of time reading gem books with him, so it's been fun to include him in this research. Also, if you want to submit an idea for an episode, the shorter episodes, of course, feel free to message me on Instagram or send an email to wiserworldpodcast at gmail.com, and I'm happy to hear what you want to learn about. Okay, let's get into it. Diamonds were first discovered in the rivers of India, possibly as early as the 4th century BC. Even then, they were so rare that they were considered very valuable. And for hundreds of years, diamonds were mostly only traded within India until around the 13th century or the 1200s, when historians have found some evidence of diamonds being found in Europe. Just really small ones, usually set with gold alongside pearls, jewelry stuff. Louis IX in France actually made a rule that all diamonds in France were reserved only for the king. But within a hundred years or so, both men and women were wearing them in the highest echelons of European aristocracy, but mostly diamonds were associated with royalty. And to get diamonds, they had to travel through the Middle East, which was dominated by Arabs at the time, and that land crossing was difficult. At the end of the 1400s, the Portuguese navigator Vasco da Gama discovered the sea route around the base of Africa, which opened up trade to come from India by boat. And that included not only spices and all of the things that we think about when we think about trade, it also included diamonds. By the 1500s, diamond cutting became a thing starting in Venice, Italy, in these medieval markets. And so the diamonds could look more brilliant because they were being cut. They weren't these rough stones. And bigger diamonds became more popular. Again, these were still so rare that only the wealthy class could wear them. And in the 1700s, it became more popular for women to wear them over men. But before that, men were wearing them. 
Around this time, diamonds were also discovered in the rivers of Brazil. And for the next hundred years or so, Brazilian diamonds definitely stepped up alongside India as major diamond traders. In the late 1700s, the ruling royal classes in Europe were on the decline, right? This was the time of the American Revolution, the French Revolution, just some examples. And the distribution of wealth began to change. With less aristocracy to buy diamonds, there was a decline of interest in diamonds. However, in the 1800s, that brought more prosperity and more money with it, especially in the United States. And the diamond industry changed forever when diamonds were discovered in South Africa. In 1866 or 1867, many resources say either one, but there was a 15-year-old boy who was son of Dutch immigrants to South Africa. And he found a small transparent rock in the river by his family's farm. And he showed the rock to his dad, and it was eventually sent in the mail to an expert who confirmed that it was a 21.24 carat diamond. It's now called the Eureka Diamond, and it's the most important diamond in the history of South Africa because it started a whole thing. A few years later, two brothers with the last name De Beer who were also Dutch settlers, discovered diamonds on their farm. And tons of people rushed their land looking for diamonds, and they eventually had to sell their land because they couldn't protect it. And a man named Cecil or Cecil Rhodes consolidated ownership of many mines and established established the De Beers Consolidated Mines Limited in 1888. And these De Beers mines controlled about 90% of the world's production of rough diamonds by 1900. So very quickly, all of these mines are consolidated into one group. So even though the De Beers brothers didn't own any of the mines, their names have become synonymous with the diamond industry and still are today. Diamond mining in South Africa took off, particularly in a place called Kimberley. The world's deepest man-made hole was made there. My husband has actually seen it, and he says it is mind-bogglingly huge. It's just huge. And in just a few years, Africa was suddenly mining more diamonds than India had in 2,000 years. 95% of the world's diamonds were being mined from there in the 1800s. Back in the day... As they discovered more and more diamonds in South Africa and in other parts of Africa, De Beers, this company, worried about the price of diamonds plummeting, right? This makes sense if you understand supply and demand. They knew that they were getting a larger supply of diamonds as they discovered all of these mines, but they wanted to keep the price high. And when there's a large supply, usually the price goes down. So what did they start doing? They started buying as many mines as they could get their hands on, and they essentially created a huge monopoly. They could control how many diamonds were sold and the price that they were sold at. Over time, De Beers became an international group. It was a collection of businesses that mined and sold diamonds, and they had distribution arms in many different countries, and these, distrib these distributors were loyal to De Beers because they all wanted the same thing, right? They wanted high demand and high price. Since the 1920s, it was owned by the Oppenheimer family, and it became an empire. Now, while diamond engagement rings were somewhat known in the upper classes in Europe earlier on, the mass popularity of diamond engagement rings really was not a thing until the 1940s, like roughly 1947. 
De Beers launched a huge marketing campaign in the 1930s, and it was they, they kind of launched this idea that diamonds were a symbol of marriage, and they used the line, a diamond is forever, which I'm sure you've heard of. The idea that diamond was synonymous with marriage was, was not a thing before then. And so this campaign was obviously very, very successful. Men began filling like the sides of the diamond, showed how much they loved their fiance. Diamonds became, they had a huge campaign for diamonds in Hollywood. And with the end of World War II in 1947 and soldiers coming home and wanting to get married and the rise of the suburbs, the general masses began buying diamond engagement rings in the United States. Demand was high. Everyone wanted them. But De Beers wanted to keep that price high, right? And they could because they had this huge monopoly. Even though by this time, diamonds really weren't that expensive to mine, and there were plenty of diamonds. Diamonds actually aren't that rare. So many more gems are more rare than diamonds. But they were able to keep the price high and give this illusion of rarity because they had a monopoly. In 1940, only 10% of American brides had diamond wedding rings. But by 1980, so 40 years later, 80% had a diamond wedding ring. De Beers' marketing campaigns in other countries is so fascinating, especially how they marketed in Japan. But I'm going to save that story for another day, or you can go look it up. It's very interesting. They were very effective marketers. So from the 1870s until the 1990s, so 120 years or so, the annual production of rough diamonds went from under a million carats to over 100 million carats per year. So within that 120 years, everything exploded. And a carat is really just a measure of weight. So by 1980, South Africa, Zaire, which is now called the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and the Soviet Union were producing the most diamonds. De Beers offered to buy every mine in the Soviet Union, so the Siberian mines were theirs. Botswana also started producing very high-quality diamonds, and De Beers contra contracted with the government of Botswana. And so Botswana built its own diamond-cutting industry, and this was the first time that De Beers had partnered with an African nation, and the deal is still in place today, and Botswana's diamonds are known for very high quality to this day. In the 1980s, diamonds were discovered in Australia, and in 2000, they were discovered in Canada. And beginning in the 1990s, some countries began kind of revolting against the De Beers monopoly. Some, some of them even called it a cartel. Since then, the company has been sold, but it is still called De Beers. However, it no longer has a complete monopoly over the market. Diamonds now come into the market through multiple channels. And today, in 2022, the largest diamond mines in the world are in Russia— Botswana, Angola, which if you don't know where that is, that is in Africa, Canada, and South Africa. Russia actually holds the world's largest diamond resources and is the largest exporter of small diamonds, but 65% of the diamonds mined today come from Africa. So I am going to focus on Africa when it comes to diamond labor, which is what we're going to talk about next. If you are unaware of the history of South Africa, don't worry. I will be doing a one-on-one country episode on South Africa and possibly even a couple of other short episodes on South Africa soon. But just a primer for you, so some of this makes a little more sense. South Africa's population is majority black, with different ethnic groups within that group. And the minority is white, with heritage usually from the Netherlands, or they have Dutch heritage, or from Great Britain. Now, due to colonialism in the 1800s, the white minority ruled over the black majority 
in various degrees of authority until the early 1990s. During the rise of diamond mines in South Africa in the late 1800s and early 1900s, the government imposed taxes that essentially forced many black farmers to begin working in mines. The mine owners now had a huge pool of cheap labor as a result of this. Black laborers signed contracts, and if you broke your contract, it was considered a criminal offense. This allowed the mines to give very low wages and to have men lived in cra- live in cramped bunkhouses with generally very unsanitary conditions. White workers were often given their own homes. As for the mines themselves, they were very hot and the work was extreme. Serious accidents were frequent. Illness was common with these unhealthy living conditions. It's estimated that one in 10 black miners, uh, mine workers died per year during this time. Strikes did happen. People fought back. They were shut down. In 1913, Farming land was officially divided up by the government, and the black areas were called reserves and were less than one-tenth of the land of South Africa, even though black South Africans were over 70% of the population. So when men began migrating to the mines for work, the family unit, these black family units were essentially destroyed because they couldn't bring their families with them to live in these unsanitary bunkhouses, so the women and children stayed behind. What little money the men earned was usually spent in the areas around the mines, which were white areas, and the money didn't make it back to the rural areas left behind. The result of this was widespread poverty amongst the blacks. In the 1940s, this is not that long ago, an extremely oppressive system took hold in South Africa called apartheid. And this system controlled black South Africans until 1994. And again, I will cover this on a much deeper level in another episode because I... I feel it is super important. I've been to South Africa. But the mining laws that were in place from the late 1800s to the rise of apartheid in the 1940s essentially set the black community up very poorly to have a means to fight back on a racist system of oppression. So the diamond mining industry contributed to apartheid. And during apartheid, black miners were exploited and paid very low wages while the diamond companies grew extremely rich. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Since 1994, 
when apartheid officially ended, laws in South Africa have changed and things have improved in many ways around diamond mining. However, wages are still lower than many feel is fair. In some areas of Africa, particularly in the less stable countries like Angola or Sierra Leone or the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where conflicts have been going on for years and years, diamond miners receive sometimes less than a dollar a day. In some areas, diamond miners are amongst the poorest people on earth. Small-scale diamond mining, so this is not De Beers level or anything like that. This is small-scale. It is rife with corruption. There are no labor standards, and some diamond miners will work independently, and they have to sell to a middleman for very low prices. In Sierra Leone, for example, the landscape is covered with thousands of abandoned mining pits made by these independent miners, and these pits will fill up with water with the rains, and then they'll fill up with mosquitoes, and this causes serious outbreaks of malaria. So the whole thing is just a big problem in some African countries. From the research I did, diamond mining does not seem to have an amazing track record when it comes to labor. Child labor is still not uncommon even today. In Angola, some say that up to 46% of miners are between the ages of 5 and 16. As a result, they do not attend school. And this was made worse during the COVID-19 pandemic when school was let out and many kids immediately went to the mines. So not attending school leaves children in higher chances of living in poverty in their future, their children. It's just this really brutal cycle. Now, not all African countries are the same. I want to make that very clear. There are some countries who have very strict labor standards, Botswana being one of them. Not all mines are created equal, right? But I think it is important to know that child labor is definitely an issue in this industry, particularly in parts of Africa that are less stable, have less stable economies. On the flip side, um, many diamond companies are very careful about their sourcing and are very aware of the issues and want to improve it. If you look on Tiffany's website, they have information on where they source their diamonds, for example. Now let's briefly talk about blood or conflict diamonds. Starting in the 1990s, the term blood or conflict diamond became more well known. So what is it? It is a diamond that was mined in a war zone, usually by forced labor, and then the money from the diamond funded a armed rebel movement. So in even simpler terms, a diamond, a blood diamond or a conflict diamond is a diamond that funded corruption. The civil wars in Angola and Sierra Leone launched this issue into the mainstream media in the 1990s. And beginning in 2003, the diamond industry began using something called the Kimberley process, which was a way to certify that a diamond came from a conflict-free area. And this has made a dent in reducing how many conflict diamonds are on the market today. The numbers are way down from what they used to be. However, there are still loopholes and other issues with this Kimberly process, and it definitely has its critics. Some say they should have much stricter processes and that blood diamonds are still leaking through more than we want to admit. The hard part about this issue, as I researched it, was that these if these conflict diamonds aren't bought, people starve. And so it's a very complicated issue. If you are interested in learning more about blood diamonds, Time Magazine has a fascinating article about it that I will link to you in my show notes. And I also want to add that with the Russia-Ukraine war, there is currently a controversy over whether or not to name diamond diamonds from Russia conflict diamonds because they may be funding the war. 
So there you have it, a very brief synopsis of the diamond industry. So heartbreaking, also fascinating, mind-bending. There's so much to it. I hope it's a starting point for you to go do your own research if you're interested in this topic. And if you learned anything in this episode, please, will you text it right now to a friend or family member, share it on your social media. I really appreciate all of the shares. And I'll see you back in two weeks. And in the meantime, let's go make the world a little wiser. <laughs>